Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. An opportunity to get better together. Welcome to the 75th episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, where I'm joined by Dr. Kenneth G. Brown. Ken is a professor of management and entrepreneurship in the Tippy College of Business at the University of Iowa. He also serves as Associate Dean of Undergraduate Program in Business. Ken grew up in Maryland and earned his PhD at Michigan State. His award-winning research focuses on e-learning, engagement, leadership development, motivation and self-regulation, and training, design, and evaluation. Outside of his work for the University of Iowa, Ken is an active supporter of public education and an advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Ken shares his journey into organizational psychology, the importance of embracing diversity, equity, and inclusion. We dig into organizational and individual learning in the context of psychological safety, and why safety and high performance are not mutually exclusive. Ken helps illustrate how business can benefit from embracing DEI. We explore the role of psychological safety and learning opportunities in organizations and why it's instrumental to continuous improvement and innovation. We talk about the ability for organizations to balance both explore and exploit mindsets and the importance of paradoxical thinking. As we face ever more complex problems, we need to move beyond the stereotype of the rugged individual and embrace the potential of high-performing teams. To do that, Ken says, you need teams that function well. It was an honor having Ken join me on the show. I'd like to thank him for his time and perspective. If you're interested in improving the performance of your teams or organizations or simply want to hear a great guest, please listen in. Ken provides plenty of insights and tips on critical issues that may face groups and organizations. I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, Ken, thank you so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Uh, For our guests, if you don't mind, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Honored to be here, Matt. I love the work that you do. Uh, My name is Ken Brown. I am a professor at the University of Iowa, Tippie College of Business. I'm also an associate dean, uh, so I have an administrative position uh, that requires me to sort of have oversight over the undergraduate program, uh, which is the uh, the BBA, Bachelor's of Business Administration uh, in Tippie, six majors, three certificates, uh, over 3,000 students, amazing set of faculty, staff, and students uh, coordinating and working on the undergraduate program there at Tippy. I've got a lot of side gigs. Um, I work with the university on a number of projects. Uh, One that's been really interesting and rewarding recently uh, is completely revamping how we think about teaching effectiveness and how the university assesses the effectiveness of their teachers. Uh, And that draws out of my background. I actually uh, uh, have all my degrees in psychology. My PhD is in organizational psychology, leading me to do research and really be passionate about workplace learning and development. You know, how do adults sort of engage in 
becoming better uh, at, at who they are and finding their strengths uh, and how do organizations help them learn and grow over time. Um, one of my other side gigs is the head of the diversity committee for Tippy. It's, again, it's not endemic to, to, to any of my roles, but I volunteered for it. Um, and it's been an amazing journey, um, learning more about, uh, you know, at the University of Iowa, we would refer to it as DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, learning about all those concepts and, and how they uh, sort of inter interface and intersect with all of the work that universities do, particularly public universities with a public mission. Uh, so, and and I'll stop with one more side gig um, yeah. and, and maybe we'll touch on others. Uh, one more side gig is uh, I've long been involved in raising money um, and trying to strengthen um, uh, school systems. Uh, I'm a product of public school education going back to kindergarten um, and, you know, went to University of Maryland, went to Michigan State, work at the University of Iowa, um, and, you know, just, just really am passionate about what public education does for society as well as for individuals. So um, I began some of my earliest nonprofit work, um, you know, working with the Good Shepherd Corporation, um, which is really just known as a Good Shepherd Center, which is an early childhood education center, um, and worked with their board there, became board president, um, did lots of work, um, you know, working on uh, exiting and uh, entering new executive directors, raising money for a new facility, renovating a, a facility, taking, uh, taking the organization through accreditation, um, just fascinating, fascinating work. And, and that's a great nonprofit. Um, and I parlayed that into work with the Weber Education Fund, One Elementary Schools Fund, and now the Iowa City Community School District Foundation. Uh, and I've held a series of offices there now. And uh, this year, uh, I have the, the opportunity to serve as the president of the School District Foundation Board of Directors, which is just another amazing group of, of people passionate about public education. That, that's great. There's so many different threads that I already want to <laughs> pull on. Uh, so I want to make sure that I get to all of these, but uh, I do want to just in, in the spirit of being present and uh, I, I do want to thank you for all the work that you're doing both on the, the DE and I front and on the public education front. I believe those are, those are critical uh, for us as organizations and for us as a, a society to continue to move forward positively um, I usually at this point do jump into how you got interested in what you do, but because there are so, there are so many intriguing, <laughs> which, which thing? <laughs> yeah, right. I do want to talk about uh, D E and I, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, over the course of kind of my career and work is that uh, at at different times maybe it seemed like diversity uh, and equity were were kind of nice things, but they weren't from a business perspective. It was, do we really have to do them? But I right. feel like over right. my career, we've seen the the true ROI of these things. We've seen uh, what from more innovative teams, from better decision-making, right? When you have uh, diversity on your teams. But I, and, and so I wanna make sure that I'm thinking about this correctly, or if you can help me here, I do feel like the I, the 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 inclusion component is fairly new to folks. And I I love it because I think it's so incredibly important. It's not just about being, 
it's not about diversity. It's not about equity. It, it you also have mm-hmm. the include if one on the pragmatic side, if you want if you want to benefit from the the secret sauce, right? People have to feel included. But right, uh, right. Can you can you help me? Uh, for, because you're also in a college of business. Uh, am I am I reading that correct? Like kind of that arc of maybe now Absolutely. we're actually getting numbers mm-hmm. on it to make the business case rather than just being a good human. Now we also have the business case for it. Absolutely, I, I think you're you're absolutely right that there has been an arc. Um, you know that you know big companies really had an inkling uh, in the '80s and '90s that you know they they had to be diverse either to comply with federal law or you know to tap markets. Um, you know, and and those perspectives on on diversity um, when you define diversity as representation are really just the tip of an iceberg, right? Um, you know, because you can hire people who look different and talk different and maybe think a little different. It's hard, but you can do it by changing your HR processes. But if they hate being there and they don't like the work, if they don't contribute their ideas because it's a hostile environment for them to be in, then you you gain none of those advantages. And that's where inclusion became more important. And in some ways, I, I think what may have happened, and, and there's so many reasons for this. It's fascinating. We could talk for hours yeah. about it. But I think part of what happened is we spent a lot of time Time, you know, in the in the 2000s and, and you know, 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, you know, talking about engagement and talking about how, you know, it's employees really need to have sort of buy-in to use that term or, you know, sort of psychological engagement. They need to be embedded. They need to feel connected, you know, and, and the more you take that seriously, and firms did, right? They, you know, they paid consultants, they they added more pulse surveys and you know, um, attitude surveys to ascertain whether their employees were engaged. The more you take that seriously, the more you realize that if you have a place, and, and this could be a big corporation, it could be a state university, it could be a small company, if you have a place that says, you know, we want to be diverse and you hire diverse people, but you treat those people poorly then those employees are not engaged um, and they leave at a higher rate and you fail to gain all the advantages of having invested the effort to recruit them. So um, large corporations, I think, have really gotten it. And there's been a wave over the last couple of years um, accelerated by Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movements, um, where corporations are driven by the, the sentiments of the society in which they interact. And there is an elevation of thinking about this issue. And if diversity is, you know, are you invited to the party? Inclusion is, you know, are you asked to dance? Right. And if you don't have people actually dancing, you know, getting to the work and having fun, then, you know, nothing good happens. So I, I think we had needed to go through this sort of process of thinking about engagement and, and that employees experience of their work environments is absolutely central to get to a place where we started to take the experiences of, of employees who may be uh, sort of, they may be minorities in one sense or another, and they may not have privilege in one sense or another, just based on what the company is and recognizing that we have to upend our, the way we do business to make sure that those folks um, are really asked to dance and they're part of the party. Um, and in fact, I like to go one step further, which is that, you know, when, when we get really enlightened about this, then the people who don't ordinarily have voice get to plan the party and they get determined what's the music. 
So they're not just dancing to your music and they're not just eating your food. Uh, They have a chance to plan out a party that they're excited to be part of. Uh, and, and I've always been interested in that, you know, going back to when I was on college, um, I ran a leadership retreat for the Greek system at the University of Maryland. And, you know, one of the things that we wanted to do was to extend the opportunities to have this retreat to the historically black fraternities and sororities, uh, what we might call the divine nine. Um, and all nine actually were present and thriving at University of Maryland. But this leadership retreat that had been offered for years and years and years had never really invited them. And, you know, as I thought about it as, as the co-chair of this, I said, you know, having them present is not enough for us to learn and for this to be a meaningful experience. So I, I, I worked to create a planning committee that had three members of the sort of historically white sororities, three members of the historically um, white fraternities, and then three representatives from the sort of historically black divine nine institutions. So we had a planning committee. We could plan the party. So the leadership retreat made sense as a weekend that was going to value and create learning opportunities for everybody. So I was, you know, 21, 22 at the time. And I would say almost the rest of my career has been every environment I step in, I ask who's not at the table, who should be helping plan the party. Uh, and, and that really has given me a frame that when, when DEI got hot, um, and, and it's true in higher ed too, like, you know, we've had chief diversity officers for years, um, you know, but have we really gotten serious? Um, uh, really, it has happened in the last 18 months. And, and I'm excited to be part of it. And I was ready. Um, and, and I sure hope it's not a trend, but I'm sure it has an element of that, right? Kind of faddish. Um, and I'm ready to hop on it. I'm ready to like, let's work and get as much done as we can while people are focused on this issue. Because uh, if we can not just do superficial things, but change institutional structures and processes, then we can make real change that gives real power to people who historically have not had it. And you know what? In the end, we all benefit because our institutions are more fair, uh, you know, to use the word equitable, right? Yeah, DEI, yeah. they're more equitable. But, you know, let's just use the common sense. They're more fair and more people benefit, more people get access, and particularly in public education. I mean, man, if we're not doing that, then then we've got the game all wrong. Uh, so I'm excited to be part of this, and and uh, I'm happy to take on my experiences, carry them forward, and to work and try to build great teams uh, to to continue this really really important work. Thank you. I love it, and uh, just you know, kind of throwing my cards on the table and my mental model and my biases are. Uh, coming at the world from more of an innovation space and a team dynamic space. And a lot of what you're saying too, just when we can bring our authentic selves to the table. And I know sometimes this is getting in a weird way. I'm seeing debate in the business community about psychological safety. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's uh, the, how do we, how do we provide a safe space and yet learn? Because a lot of times when we learn, there's some type of stressor or we're just stretching beyond our norms. And, right, right. and I don't think those are mutually exclusive. Right. Uh, and they're, they're not, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the whole premise of Amy Edmondson's work, who, who really started the concept yeah. of safety, is that safety is required for learning. And, and there are people who don't understand this. Yeah, they think that you. we learn 
when people are under pressure. Um, we learn when people are held accountable for their behavior. And, you know, yes, but when people really learn and are able to transform their ways of thinking is when they can make mistakes and they can talk about it. Mm-hmm. And everybody can talk about it in a way that frames this as learning opportunity. Um, and, and this is where I think actually some organizations and some people are getting DEI wrong. Because if you create a DEI initiative that shames people, you're not using the right word to refer to this minoritized group. Or, you know, you as a minoritized group are spending too much time on this issue. Like, why do you keep bringing up a race? Um, those kinds of statements to shame people are the kinds of indicators that there isn't psychological safety, that there isn't uh, your ability to bring your authentic self, to use your language, your ability to raise the issues that you see as important without fear of being told that you're wrong or you've got it wrong. Um, I think safety is is instrumental to effective DEI practice and strategy. And as, as your own work and podcast suggests, it's absolutely instrumental to innovation. You can't get people to feel safe throwing out new ideas or to try risky ideas if they're worried that at the end of that day, someone's going to go, man, you're dumb. What were you doing? Yeah. You know, and, and as a manager, I love, I love when people make mistakes because, and that sounds weird, um, but I do because it's a great opportunity to, to broadcast safety and the philosophy of continuous improvement and learning, which is to say, you know what? Yeah, that didn't go the way we wanted it to. Let's talk about it, you know, and it's a great learning opportunity because you know what? We'll, we'll do it better next time and, and celebrate those moments, um, and uh, I'm sure there are times when I don't I don't do that well, but I really, as a as a leader, as a manager, I, I try to do that. And what that means is that people can one bring their authentic self; they don't have to sweat. You know, are they saying and doing the right thing? And two, when they do make a mistake, and we all make mistakes, they don't have to worry that they're going to you know have their hands slapped and and you know be made to feel embarrassed. Instead, it's like this is cool. We all make mistakes. Let's talk. And this is an opportunity for us to get better together. Thank you. Yeah. I love it. I know. And and sometimes this is, might seem a little bit, you know, like sometimes like I'm trying to thread a needle, but in a group communication or team communication perspective too, we try to promote the idea of ideational conflict or Mm -hmm. uh, in in design, we critique and we want to talk about the work, what the work is doing or not doing. Right. We don't Mm want to say, what the hell were you, 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 know, you idiot? What are you doing? Why can't I get good performance out of you? Right, right. But right. When we well, I, yeah, I, was, I know you know this research. I mean, you bring up ideational conflict. I mean, the classic research on conflict said we should distinguish between task focused and person focused conflict. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is if you look at the empirical research in the space, and I, I have a feeling you have, that um, while they are different, like if I said to you, you know, Matt, your podcast is a bad idea. Um, you know, I said your podcast, I use your name. But if I said, you know, I have some questions about the Iowa ideal, the Iowa idea, the ideal, yeah. you know, and, and you know, and, and what is the role of, of art and what is the role of theory as it relates to practice? You know, the latter invites a whole heck of a lot more conversation than the former. And, and you know, it contributes to 
Um, when you're talking about the ideas, hopefully some psychological safety, because it's not, I'm not criticizing you. Uh, I want to talk about ideas. The research says that they're pretty highly correlated. And the reason for that is a lot of us get defensive, right? I mean, if I critique the name of the podcast, like it's still your podcast, like, and it's really hard not to get defensive. So the, the path I think to psychological safety and to more effective constructive conflict is, is actually requires everybody to act a little differently. It's not like you can just fix it by initiating conflict in a way that supposedly is about the idea and the task and not the person, because it's often interpreted both ways. It requires both the person initiating and the person receiving to be open to um, having conversations because they don't feel that those conversations are a threat to their identity, to their success, um, to their paycheck. Um, and, and it might and, even feel like you have their back, right? Exactly. Like, right. Well, and to me, you know what, that's, that comes down to safety. Like you yeah. create safety and then that makes it less likely that ideational, uh, conflict or task oriented conflict is going to be interpreted as, or start to be taken down the path of personality or person conflict. Um, so really interesting research that's come out in this, that shows the intersections. And I know you've, you've started to see this and play in this space, but the intersections between safety, team dynamics, innovation, and creativity are really, really tight. And they suggest that managers can just blow it up with a few keywords and, and a few, you know, shaming of somebody who said something that was creative, but kind of out of line. You can destroy a year's worth of progress, <laughs> making a team be creative through psychological safety. So we, we want to be careful and thoughtful about how we address issues that involve people making mistakes. And that's the thing about diversity is it's an area that's easy to make mistakes and hurts people's feelings. Yeah, I, I, I love it. And as you were saying that, I was thinking about things that probably overlap into both like sports and performance, but thinking about teams in, in a sports team setting, but also thinking about uh, improv comedy ensembles mm. is yep. that that exploration and those those opportunities when you frame it as a question or we might even say like socratic method uh i think when we're dealing with more complex space or things that aren't transactional it's also an opportunity to see like let that we can get to the intent or we can get to guiding principles mm-hmm. uh where it's like here's what we're trying to here's what we're trying to do or here's why this might be difficult or this might be challenging and that safety spot when when somebody feels relaxed and you can see it in their body language right mm-hmm. but i've i've had i've had sports coaching friends talk i mean talk about the notion of the yips right like you you play tight and you don't get your best performance I mean, kind of famously chuck knoblock from when he went to the Yankees, right, couldn't make a throw from second base to first base, probably the shortest regular throw. And here's somebody who did it their whole life, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, I had John Sweeney on a while ago from an improv perspective. And I used to do uh, improv work. And like when you look at the ensemble, right, it's how do you say yes and? And how it's basically exactly. yeah. yes and, be present, declare and commit. I'm oversimplifying, but that's how can I build on your idea? Yeah. Powerful yeah. principles. Yeah. How can I listen to and and really be present? And mm-hmm. before we get back, one of the things just to to check in to see if you have you by chance seen Ed Hess's work on hyper learning? No, I haven't actually. Not to so, take a look. 
Yeah. So quick, just quick arc. You know, Ed, uh-huh. uh, Ed, Ed came through the world as a what as a uh, investment banker, right? Mm. And then taught at Darden. And now when he's talking about collaboration and what hyper learning is also, how do we unlearn certain things right. and be ready to, and for him, it's coming down to having meaning making conversations with people that first start by uh, quieting. It's very like Zen, like quiet yourself, suppress mm-hmm. the ego so that you can be present so that you can mm-hmm. listen. And it's, a, and then having the dialogue. And I, I do find that interesting uh, again, coming from like, the way I was raised early in my career, the kind of, uh, you know, investment bankers in the 90s, it wasn't about quiet yourself. <laughs> right, or your ego, certainly, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So well, we're very get... fortunate in, oh, in Tippy to, to train investment bankers. Yeah. Right? We send a lot of people to New York and we have sent some remarkable young uh, people who are very thoughtful and, you know, kind of Iowans right. to New York. Um, and, and I got to tell you, I think, I think you know the investment banks uh, do some harm uh, to the market and to the world, uh, but they also do some some good. And some of the folks we've sent are very thoughtful, um, and and have worked on very interesting projects. Um, and it, you know, it really is critical. And you know, you talked about hyper learning. I use sort of uh, a framework of uh, exploration and exploitation. Um, and exploitation, not in, in the bad way, but exploitation is, you know, you take advantage of what you already know to create efficiencies. And, and, and we need to do both. I mean, right, you know, right. we need to be able to perform, to execute. Um, and, and the question is, you know, how can you create safety and the opportunity to explore and learn and also have a performance-oriented culture where people are still, you know, working hard, doing great things and meeting deadlines. And, you know, being able to think in a yes and framework is absolutely critical to do that. You can have psychological safety and you can still, you know, meet 99% of your deadlines. These are not, these are not things that are necessarily or fundamentally in contrast to each other. Um, so cool. I, love, I know you want to move yeah, on, but you and I yeah, can talk about this a right. long time. I, and, and just to, to play with the two, the two words that you said, explore and exploit. And I heard those come up recently in kind of adaptive systems, and mm-hmm. uh, one of the th- one of the combination of pandemic and and my love of complex systems is exactly uh, right. I'm getting into beekeeping, and oh, you told me that. That's right. You can yeah. look at um, almost like whether it's you know kind of uh, flare and focus types of things, but as mm-hmm. a super organism too. That how bees can understand it. It's time to exploit here's a great nectar source and we are working this until we can't work. All the drones are going. Yeah. And everybody else is, you know, and then there's other people with roles that are, are, are looking and sensing, do we have enough honey? Like, you know, right. Like I didn't know this. So I'll show this my, uh, maybe a nerd thing for you. Do you know why they're called beekeeper? It sounds like I'm setting up a dad joke, but do you know why they're called beekeepers? (laughs) I don't. Because that is, that was the skill is because bees will swarm and I thought swarm just meant there's a bunch of them around, but swarming is right. that they'll actually vacate and they can vacate quickly because of how they read. Like, is this a safe spot? Oh, Are we right, under attack? Right. So you're keeping them in a location. Right. If you can keep them yeah. part of the skill. So that's so interesting. Yeah. Bees are fascinating. And I mean, you know, at the risk of, of <laughs> setting you off to talk for hours uh, right. when I'm the guest here, uh, yeah. I think, um, you know, the fact that they, that they have differentiated roles. 
right, is 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 so interesting and so important and raises the importance of, you know, nobody does this alone. Um, you know, no organization is successful as alone. We have a tendency to lift people up, um, you know, whether it's um, Ariana Huffington or Michael Dell, uh, yeah. you know, or any of those folks, we have a tendency to lift them up. But the reality is they've, ne- they've never done it alone. And they need people to serve these different functions. They need people around them to help them explore and think new ideas. And they need other people around them to say, yeah, but we got to meet this production deadline. Right. You know, we, we have a magazine to produce. We have a computer that we need to ship. Uh, and I think the most effective leaders um, are people who understand and respect the different mindsets and personalities and skill sets that those folks bring. Because if you overweight, I mean, it's kind of like, would, would a beehive thrive if all the drones stop working? Would a beehive thrive if the queen decided to take two weeks off? Right, um, right. You know, would it, would it thrive if there was no maintenance of the hive itself? Um, you know, Everybody is needed. Everybody becomes critical to the functioning of the whole. And, and like you, I'm a big fan of general systems theory and, yeah. and apply it all the time and, and often find that dysfunction arises out of the lack of respect and appreciation for an element, an aspect, or a subgroup or subculture within uh, a team or organization. Um, because then that overweights and underweights important functions that need to happen for the team to be successful. Yeah, just a couple of things. I'll make sure I don't go too long on this. But to, <laughs> to your point on on the bees, one of the things I found I found fascinating is worker bees. Um, yet very differentiated roles, and uh, they evolve. So they'll go from like nurse bee to basically kind of there's garbage keepers, right? They keep mm-hmm, things yeah. clean and. Yeah. Right all the way to like some of their last jobs are the foragers. So they, they've they almost worked every position and just thinking about like that deep knowledge and understanding, right? That one might have in an organization, let alone the empathy. If we really understood, oh, this, these are the stressors that our finance team has. Mm-hmm. These are our stressors that our call center has. Like just from an empathy standpoint, I think that could be powerful. But the nerdiest thing now for me uh, is I, I was just blown away that bees individually are cold blooded, but as a super organism, uh, they're yeah. warm blooded. <laughs> I just read about that. Isn't that incredible? Right. So, and and if we only thought that way, right? Yeah. Like if we only recognize that you know you and me alone, um, really very little chance of surviving in today's economy, and we still hold on to that kind of mindset, the rugged individualist. Um, and I remember thinking that as a kid. And the more I learned about systems theory and teamwork, uh, you know, as an organizational psychologist and studied, you know, what what organizations are most successful, um, the more I realized that, you know, you absolutely, uh, you need teams and you need teams that function well. I, I used to use military examples and I've, yeah. I've started shying away from them. But, you know, one I always used is, you know, we always celebrate General MacArthur, you know, but MacArthur without a Bradley would have been a failure. I mean, it would have absolutely done damage to the war effort because he was super charismatic and wildly unrealistic. And he was able to get amazing results, but because somebody else was picking up the mess and making sure that all the details got taken care of. And that was General Omar Bradley. So, you know, it's that same notion that, you know, systems thrive when each of the 
parts works effectively independently, but also they work effectively together. Uh, and that's the magic, I think, of good leadership and management uh, is, is getting the right pieces together and getting them to work effectively together over time. Thank you. I do want to go back then to your, your journey and interest in organizations and psychology. Um, do you remember what, like, was it a fascination you always had as a, as a kid or was like, you just like, what makes people tick or was there some, like some transformation event, like a, a class or a book that you read that really mm-hmm. got you down this path? Yeah. That's a, it's a great question. I mean, I, I remember, you know, as early as third and fourth grade, um, you know, being fascinated by people and psychology. And I did a career assessment. I dug this out recently. I did a career assessment, I think in fourth grade. And, and uh, you know, I was listening to a lot of rock and roll music and I started playing guitar. So my two career choices at the time were to be a clinical psychologist or a rock and roll star. Um, and you can guess which one I'm, I'm closer to. So my parents are actually, they met here. You know, my dad grew up in Richmond. My mom grew up in Portland, Oregon. And they both came to Iowa to study psychology at the University of Iowa when Ken Spence was here. Um, Spence Laboratories is right, now right. named after Ken Spence. So he was a prominent, uh, lots of cool stuff going on in, at, at the University of Iowa, by the way, in lots of disciplines. But in psychology, in the 50s and 60s, um, you know, we had a guy by the name of Kurt Lewin, uh, Levin uh, was the German, but Lewin, yep. um, who's very famous in, in organizational cycles. I've, I've had a chance to, to publish a little bit, to look at his archives is that here in Iowa. So he was here. Theory? Is that... Um, yeah, so that is, is that one the of the quotes about, attributed to okay. him. Yes, that's uh, one of Kurt Lewin's, uh, is that he was a practical theorist, um, yeah, which you. actually is consistent with, you know, your um, your idea and your mission here. Um, uh, and he initially started studying children here at the Iowa Children's Hospital. Um, so some really interesting connections. But my parents, you know, they met here uh, and they were both studying psychology. So as a kid... Um, you know, I didn't grow up here, but, you know, Iowa had this mythological status as the place my my parents met. I was fascinated by people and my dad would explain things when I was in elementary school using psychological theory. And you know, I didn't want to be a clinician um, like he did. Um, you know, I, I, I love that work, but I was fascinated by teams. Um, you know, I played sports. I was very involved in leadership activities. Um you know, I, I loved, I worked in a kitchen, the, you know, the bus boy and a prep cook and sort of loved how people work together. Um, and, you know, in, in the end, it was really my mom who said, look, you're doomed to be a psychologist. I mean, you just are based on your genetics and your interests. Maybe you should be an organizational psychologist so that you can study leadership and teams and organizations rather than doing clinical work. Uh, and in fact, I was very lucky at University of Maryland. I took a, a psychopathology clinical psych class and, and I found it actually interesting and easy um, just because I'd grown up with it. Yeah. But I also had a chance to take an industrial organizational psychology class. And I was like, yeah, this is it. Um, this is what I want to do. And actually had a chance to transition really early as an undergrad into doing some teaching. Um unusual, but undergraduate teaching assistant where I actually did some teaching, doing research, uh, working on uh, research that eventually got published, doing my own independent honors thesis, working with a bank in Maryland, and doing some consulting where we were collecting data from some state organizations uh, to produce a report on leadership development programs. So I jumped in really, really early and stayed in the field uh, by going to Michigan State, which also 
you know, had industrial organizational psychology and had people doing research. I did federally funded laboratory research uh, funded by the Navy, um, but also doing consulting, working with, um, you know, Tenneco Automotive, which is a, a huge producer of original equipment manufacturing uh, that sits in the underneath of uh, many, many of our cars. Uh, right. So in other words, the exhaust, the muffler, the tailpipe, uh, and just, just great, great work. So that was my trajectory from kind of wanting to be a psychologist or a rock star to, you know, knowing I didn't have any musical talent. Uh, and then my mom helping me find organizational psychology. That That's great. And I love, um, it sounds like while you were being introduced to it in formative time, but in college, you, you went right into the deep end, right? Just, yeah, and I mean, I took some time to explore. I mean, I looked around. I mean, I was sort of, I have a forager mentality. So, you know, I was taking IO psych classes, but I looked at higher ed and student affairs. Um, I looked at organizational development, master's programs in organizational development. And I interviewed to be a consultant. You know, at the time, um, uh, you know, Anderson Consulting uh, is where my brother worked. It was thriving. Uh, it had become kind of one of the management consulting firms that was making heavy use of uh, behavioral sciences and psychology um, to sell, you know, big business, cool projects with large companies. Yep. So I interviewed with them in Washington, D.C. Uh, but, you know, in the end, after all that foraging, you know, the, you know, the calling to kind of really study deeper psychology um, just made so much sense. It just resonated with who I am and my values and interests. And then you're at, you're at Michigan state and, uh, that's, it's, uh, the P for the PhD program, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's where you earned your PhD. Um, what was, uh, out of curiosity, if you don't mind sharing, what was your, uh, dissertation topic? What was the area of interest for your, your research at that point? So, I mean, I spent my first couple of years doing lab research funded by, uh, the Navy and I, I even worked for the, um, uh, the, the Navy as an undergrad, uh, actually in DC. Um, so I was doing sort of federally funded work, looking at um, kind of the learning, uh, how people learned what amounted to an air traffic controller task, um, uh, looking at kind of not just cognitive learning, but sort of emotional affective learning, um, looking at mental models, looking at sort of metacognition, uh, thinking about thinking as opposed to just, you know, um, you know, kind of thinking about the task, but pausing and thinking about um, what am I thinking about, which actually has some really nice connections with all the stuff we talk about with mindfulness now. Right. Um, so I was doing that work and really loved it, you know, but I also really liked the consulting and getting out. Um, and at the time, which was, you know, kind of the, um, you know, late mm, 90s, um, the automotive companies were really starting to invest in computer-based training. Um, and I wanted to do field work. I wanted to get in and I'd started doing some consulting with Ford Motor Company uh, and they were going to run this pilot where they were going to take one of their really premier courses for engineers. At the time it was called Global 8D and it was a problem solving process sort of, you know, predating um, Kaizen and Lean, but very much in that model. And this is a course that they had trained every Ford engineer anywhere in the world on. And it costs a lot of money to fly all those engineers um, into Dearborn, Michigan to do the training. So they were looking at computer-based training and I had an opportunity um, and this became my dissertation to work with them from the very beginning to design the course, 
as an as a as an online course. Um, so it wasn't just computer based. Actually, it was a web based delivery. Uh, you know, designing the course, embed research questions, embed interventions, uh, and then we ended up running the course in a controlled environment for my dissertation, so I could observe people, um, collect all the data, interview them as they left, uh, and uh, and that you know that really became the launching point for an interest in, um, you know, kind of online learning specifically, which is where I've done a lot of my research. Uh, and also for, you know, doing research that's kind of interesting and multifaceted. You know, I got to interview every single one of the, the folks who finished the course, um, learned a lot about them and their perceptions and recognize that each of them approached the course from a different perspective. So yeah, we had psychological instruments and everything, but there was a richness to it, um, you know, and I had a chance to publish that research and, um, you know, the course won a design award. Um, I was really proud to be part of the team. Uh, my dissertation um, won an award from the American Society of Training Development, which is now um, ATD, right. uh, their annual research awards. So really great professional opportunities uh, and a good balance for me in my development to do laboratory research and then do field research, you know, really embedded with a design team um, and studying um, workplace learners, not at a distance. Like this was not data mining, like, oh, we looked at a, a million people who did an online course. Like I sat with these people and listened and learned from them to understand what their experience was working through the course. Can you uh, help me uh, just a time frame about what year is this that that the research is going on? So 97 design, 98 um, kind of delivery data collection, technically finished in 99. Um, uh, I came to Iowa. My wife got a job here first uh, and I followed her. Shoot, I, you know, my parents met here, but I, yeah. I hadn't even come and set foot in the state until after my wife accepted a job as a professor here. Uh, I came and technically started in 98. Um, but but I've been working for Ford as a sort of consultant, working on a couple projects for three years by then. Uh, and did some other projects with GM uh, and then with a, a really interesting um, organization that did pre-competitive research um, as a consortium of automotive manufacturers. So this was a group that got funding and, and kind of did stuff that all the automotive manufacturers said, yeah, we're happy to share. This is not you know, intellectual property. It's pre-competitive. Uh, and I did some work on best practices for training and development. Um, with that organization, uh, and that was fascinating to see the the uh, sort of industrial research engine um, and and how it has different facets: pre-competitive, competitive. competitive um, you know, let alone the issue of competitive intelligence, where you try to figure out what right. the other your competitors are hiding from you. No, thank you. I uh, kind of early-ish in my career. Too, I was at Capella University. Mm-hmm. That's like two thousand to two thousand seven, but that was kind of wild, wild west days of yeah, exactly uh, online right. learning. And I mean, a lot of other factors, right? For profit, a, a lot of things going on. But as as somebody young in my career, it was really interesting too, even looking at uh, the faculty experience, the student experience uh, in, in the environment. And I still remember that we were running data on just, just how is somebody accessing the course? Because we wanted to... Um, Basically, stuff that we had in our back pocket from course design was what might make this richer or more robust, but we didn't right. want to, you know, it was like, 
we didn't want to in, impede kind of signal to noise ratio. Yeah, exactly. People, yeah. Because it, it probably I sound like an old man walking uphill both ways, but these were, you know, most people are still doing dial-up connection, uh, right? Yeah. So we were keeping an eye on wind's broadband and couldn't. Yeah, but this is still an issue. <laughs> so, so like, this is one of the things that, and maybe you and I are, are now yeah. officially in the old man camp, you know, but we get excited about bells and whistles. Uh, and actually one of the pieces that I wrote back then, back in the day, yeah. was about bells and whistles. And, you know, nowadays the bell and whistle is, um, you know, high definition graphics, um, augmented reality, virtual reality, you know, and and boy, that stuff can be really effective, but it also can impede access because people don't have the right equipment or bandwidth. It can distract people as a bell and whistle from the actual core learning outcomes. So one of the hallmarks of my sort of career as a scholar and a consultant in learning and development is to say, you know, always keep your eye on what it is you want people to be able to do when they finish your training course. Yeah. And, you know, be wary of the bells and whistles that, you know, are exciting because they're new. And, and even the learners might say, that was so cool. Like, I, you know, I got to play a game, you know, and it made it great. But did you accomplish the objective that you set for them? Uh, so I, I'm with you that, like, if you lose sight of that, and if it means being an old man to say, slow down, <laughs> slow down, let's make sure that we know the path to the school. And, you know, it might be uphill both ways, um, you know, but if that's the way we're going to do it, we're going to do yeah. it that way, as opposed to using the the newest, sexiest bell and whistle. I, yeah, I love it because I just in general, too, and even from a design, what what is technology's role? Right. And exactly when it's done right, it enables it extends the right, mm -hmm. but uh, I think a lot of times we we end up setting it up as a driver or filter. Exactly. And uh, one of the things I used to say to my team is like, if we're not sure what we're doing and we start to automate it, we can we can screw up faster. That was <laughs> exactly right. That's what you do. We you can automate our mistakes. Yeah. We can we can scale our yeah. mistakes. Uh, well, one one way I get out of that trap, and I don't know whether you've done this, is just to reframe what is technology. So technology is just. Uh, technology is a transformation process. It is a means, whatever that is, to take something that is a particular input and to change it to what we are calling our output. Right. And as soon as you talk about technology that way, there's something called administrative technologies um, that include things like committees and task forces. Uh, they include workflow and, and paperwork and policies. Uh, and when you frame technology at its broadest kind of, you know, abstract intellectual level, then sometimes you can get people away from, you know, the, uh, you know, technology as the latest computer gizmo. Right. Um, Cause that, that often isn't what you need. And, and I spent boy, 10 years teaching MBA courses on training and development, arguing against enterprise resource systems, you know, um, because at the time they were, you know, bloated and difficult. SAP was the big market player. Half the documentation was still in German, um, you know, and, and my brother made a great living before he started his own business doing SAP implementation um, because nobody understood it except the people who spent two years learning how to do it. And it just is, is not necessarily worth the investment. And I argued, you know what you need to manage the training experience? You need one instructional designer who cares in an Excel spreadsheet. 
Um, and that was true for years. I, I think it's no longer true. Um, you know, we, we certainly progressed, but I would argue, you know, back when you were at Capella back in 2000, you know, that one really good instructional designer could work with a group of faculty in Excel spreadsheet and create a pretty darn good program. That was one of the things that really helped me as a designer was the instructional designers early, the mm -hmm. ones that had laser like focus on goal. Yeah, like exactly. what's the goal? What are the desired outcomes? And Everything else is noise, and so we'll we'll add it in if it adds value. And I, yeah. I remember when you're on the other side of it, it can be a frustrating conversation, but it gave me a lot of clarity. I was laughing because um, early in my career too, one of the one of the first websites I built was an intranet for Allstate Insurance Company. Oh yeah, yeah. To, su to support their SAP implementation because it was so hard to use. Right, right. Imagine the resources you you're spending. Right yeah. to get all this up and running, and mm -hmm. forgot about those business models for enterprise software, where one was the big sale, and then then there was the training team, mm -hmm. there was an implementation team, and all of those costs. Um, I know we're getting close on time. One of the things I want to dig in is when I was looking at some of your your research. One of the things that also fascinates me is, and I don't claim to understand it at all, I probably have misunderstandings of Ryan and DC's work and self-determination theory. Mm -hmm. And if my wife hears this podcast, she's going to be really irritated because I know that was also a, <laughs> that was, that was a theoretical framework and part of her, uh, mm -hmm. her PhD research. But one of the things that really stood out to me, you're, and if I'm getting this right, is some of your work was trying to help move beyond the intrinsic extrinsic debate in self-determination yeah. theory. Do you Which mind sharing silly, right? I mean, how often, I mean, we, we've already talked about this. How often yeah. is the easy rhetorical strategy to say it's this or this? I mean, it's just, it, we use it, you know, I try, I try not to, but I still use it because it, you know, it's, it's an effective device um, to get people's attention. And it's often an effective device. You know, if you set up a, a, a straw man and you're trying to get people to choose the option that you want. So you say, look, it's either A or B. And then you talk about all the ways in which B is, is horrible and will ruin society. You know, but the reality is that most of the time, whether we're talking about individual psychological processes, team processes or organizations, most of the time, you know, things are not fully mutually exclusive. Uh, and that's what's so fascinating to me about the debate. And I think what DC and Ryan were doing, I, I understand. I mean, part of what they were trying to do is fight against kind of an old behavioralist model um, and, and an old, you know, and then I hate to use the word old, old, but initial sort of cognitive models that grew out of the uh, sort of behavioral research, you know, that really talked about the primacy of, you know, these sort of immediate rewards um, that shape behavior. Um, and that, and that can be done simple behavioralistic, um, you know, so you do something, I give you a treat, intermittent reinforcement or right. powerfully, you know, this is how, um, you know, we get people to gamble, um, you know, don't, don't always reward them, but reward them just enough to keep them on the hook. Um, and, and even the earliest cognitive theory is really kind of stuck with that. And what DC and Ryan were trying to do is, is bring the human into that and to say, you know, people come with passions and interests. Um, and those things matter. Um, but within the broader subs, the broader arena of self-determination theory, there were a series of sort of sub theories. Uh, these were very ambitious scholars and really brilliant 
scholars uh, who, who produced a lot of scholarship and a lot of students who continued to do work. You know, one of the subsets of their theories was this sort of notion that really grabbed people um, and became kind of a mantra for a long time, which is that, um, you know, extrinsic motivation undermines intrinsic motivation. Uh, and the label for that was cognitive evaluation theory, and there was some research to support it. Um, but, you know, over time, you know, I think we recognize, you know, like if I was to give you 10 grand to do your podcast, do you think you would be less interested? I mean, would it really rob you? You know, you would be like, oh, sweet, I'm going to get a new microphone. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. it, it would not steal. And and I, I think it was too simplistic. And in fact, I think the scholars have even recognized, you know, that that, that kind of simplistic orientation doesn't make sense. So the reality is that. There are lots of different ways that people get rewarded and reinforced for behavior in the world, and some of them are more tangible than others. And what ends up motivating people ultimately is about their interpretation of those rewards. So if somebody gives you 10 grand because they love who you are and what you're doing and want you to do more of it, that's not going to undermine your motivation. It just reinforces it. Um, now, if I were to give you 10 grand and say, I want you to rename your podcast, and I want it to be about details matter and without proper grammatical work, you can never change organizations. You know, you are going to feel controlled, right? right like right. I'm trying to bribe you. Um, and, and I really think that that's all DC and Ryan were initially trying to do is to recognize um, that there are ways in which extrinsic motivations move people off the dime off their, their passions and their interests. And, and those can really um, end up alienating you. And, uh, you know, to go back to your term about your authentic self, when someone else is trying to use money to get you to be someone other than who you are, that really is undermining um, and really frustrating and is ineffective. So on that piece, they were very, very right. Uh, but it took some other scholars to go in and do meta-analytic work um, where you look across and you sort of tabulate across studies to say, look, really, it is, it's just in the interpretation. It's people's feelings of whether they're feeling controlled or not. Um, and what I love to do with extrinsic rewards when I can is to, to reward people for doing amazing things in areas of their passion. Um, and, and all that does is it doesn't change their intrinsic motivation at all. They're still going to be passionate about what they're passionate about. It's just a way of saying to them, you know what, the world sees you or, or I see you as a leader, as a manager, I see you and I value you exactly the way you are for the work you're doing, the work that you're passionate about. And it matters in this world. And, and I'm going to show you that it matters by giving you a limited resource. Um, you know, a little bit of my donation or a little bit of the, 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 the bonus pool. Uh, so that's, that's my thought on, on DC and I, and absolutely brilliant. And, you know, but the notion that extrinsic motivation undermines intrinsic motivation oversimplifies both extrinsic motives and intrinsic motives. And they've got a whole continuum that they work with, but I just like to say, you know, going back to this notion of, of, you know, authentic self, and people's passions is, you know, the best thing you could ever do is help someone find a space that they're super passionate about and they have some skills in that society wants to pay them for and then let them loose and, and let them play out that passion. And hopefully they make all the money in the world because if they're making things better and doing a good job doing it, then they deserve that money. Yeah, Ken, I wish I had a, 
a better way to articulate this, but what you're describing to me is like one of our, it's almost to me like a human resource free market challenge is, is how do we just best get people connected to here's their superpower and yeah. here's a need. I feel like. Absolutely. Absolutely. What is, what is, I don't know. What is the, what is the eBay for, for, for skill and feeling better, right? Do you know, there's something there yeah, about yeah. what people really have to offer yeah. and they're, they're passionate about it. They're great at it. You know, just, I, and I'm oversimplifying and it's the optimist in me, but somehow it's like, man, I think everybody has a superpower and so much energy is burned because we, we just don't have the right lens on you. We don't have the mm-hmm. right connection. And I see it at small levels, sometimes in organizations, again, dangerously painting with broad strokes, but where we see organizations where people were smart enough to get in the door, uh, but then they're treated like they're dumb while they're there. Know, or it's not, and, and then you see... Mm-hmm. You see their spirit fade too. So I just, I, yeah, I don't know. I I would love to connect, uh, like explore that a little bit. Uh, Not here, just, I I wish I could articulate it better. So I might want to follow up with you, just helping me operationalize what I'm thinking. Here's a a quick way to articulate it. There's a a Japanese concept about these intersections. um, And it was adopted and modified and made popular by Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great. Uh, and and he really talked about the magic is, you know, between what the market needs, what you're good at, and what you're passionate about. So it's what your heart is capable of investing in, what your hands are capable of building, and what people will pay you for. And and what he said is it's at the intersection of those three things that greatness happens. And and I think if we all recognize that, and 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 there's a number of HR practices that follow out of that. You know, one is is realistic job previews. I mean, don't try to just get the most talented people. Tell people what it's really like, and what you're really about. I think uh, you know, principal leadership, where you explain to people, you know, what really matters to us. What are we really trying to accomplish as a matter of principle? You know, helps people see if there's a connection between their heart. And, and the work. So there, there are a lot of ways that, you know, um, you could make, and I, I know you yeah. asked sort of about phrases and sayings, you know, I just, um, you know, Colin's work, and I had a chance to meet him when I won that award um, that I mentioned about, I yeah. won the paper award, and he was the keynote speaker. So we were in the green room, you know, and he asked me a bunch of questions. He's like, send me the paper. Like, he was just such a passionate, curious guy. Um, it's always stuck with me that, you know, he, he left academics. He walked away from Stanford because he wanted to get to a, a place where he could do more exploring and learning and follow his passions. And then he built a team around him by just telling people like, this is what we're, we want to do. We want to explore this issue of, you know, how is it that organizations really thrive and, and don't succumb to mediocrity? Uh, and he built a pretty good team. He's done some really amazing work outside of a traditional university setting. Yeah, so many interesting, and and I'm sure you're you're aware of it, but just the, all the work that you're doing, kind of for social good, too, right? Is I I remember looking at uh, like the the thin booklet on uh, it was basically good to great for social sectors too, for right? social and, sectors and nonprofits. Yeah. yeah, it's so cool he did that, and he and he published it for free. Right, I love, love it. it. Yeah. Oh, uh, one one thing I, before we go, I want to just uh, check in and see because this this was just brought to my attention recently, but it ties together Capella University, it ties together education, it ties together psychology in the University of Iowa, 
But uh, have you heard about the upcoming book called The Orphans of Davenport? Are you familiar with that? No, I haven't. Interesting. So um, there, there was a debate, you know, over over a century ago about basically uh, children's intelligence, right? Right, right. And um, there was basically, there was a researcher from Iowa that went to um, Davenport where these kids were um, uh, orphaned. And it was just uh, what was happening to these just when they had a little bit of maternal care and how they developed and, Lou Bronca uh, was somebody I worked with, phenomenal, phenomenal person uh, that I worked with at Capella University. He died a few years ago, and uh, it was in his, in his obit that he was one of the orphans. Uh, so he, oh wow, was and here's somebody who went out. He had a uh, played music, had a uh, strong uh, military career, and then started getting more involved in in higher ed and higher ed administration and. And what I loved about like his last kind of chapter was this, this internet thing sounds pretty cool and like still testing theories of education that does it, does it apply in this context, but Lou was a phenomenal person, but he, uh, when he, uh, when I mentioned Iowa to him one time, he, he, he said, I was, I was a Davenport orphan and it didn't, I didn't know what that meant. And we talked about it, but now I see there's an upcoming book, uh, later this year that Mm -hmm. digs in and just, uh, for me, the, also just the power of education, and I know we have, and I don't want to put you on the spot with your your role, but we're, you know Iowa over its great arc has had a really strong late relationship as an economic engine for the state, contributions yeah. it's made for the world. I know that we're at challenging times right now with uh, state legislature, but it just to me it's a, a reminder about like the great advances and the great heart, like when. To me, when I was at its best, <laughs> it's it's like big brain, big heart, and easy to hang out with. And I feel like that kind of Orphans of Davenport project, just letting the world know that you're not predestined to be good or not based on uh, yep. income or parents. Yeah, we talk about this, you know, a lot when we, you know, in Tippy, uh, and I think it's true with the whole university, but in Tippy, you know, we talk about, you know, we have this massive advantage being here in Iowa. You know, we we tend to attract, you know, students who believe in um, hard work and honesty. They believe in potential. You know, they don't believe that, you know, you got to be born into that family or this family. And I mean, my first honor student who actually I'm just delighted has come back to the University of Iowa and she works here now in an executive role. My first honor student, you know, came off a dairy farm, you know, and for anybody who knows a dairy farm, you know, this is somebody who knows hard work, like who understands that, you know, the way to get things done is to grind every day. And, uh, you know, you, you can't, you can't skip a day. You can't skip leg day if you want to be strong. And if you're, you got a dairy farm, you can't skip milking the cows. Um, it's just not something that you can do. Um, and she's done incredibly well. And she very early on was one of the people who just sort of convinced me of the the kind of magic of Iowa. And I do worry that sometimes we've lost that, you know, we've lost sight of it sometimes, you know, um, and, and, and I can't pinpoint one cause. I mean, there's so much noise and there's so much, you know, political divisiveness and stuff, right. but, you know, if you get down to it, you know, we, we absolutely should be able at the university of Iowa to take orphans from, from, Davenport, Waterloo, um, Storm Lake, we should be able to take people off the farm and we should be able to create 
an amazing educational experience for them so that, you know, wherever they want to go, whether it's Wall Street, um, Palo Alto or back to the farm, that we're going to arm them with everything they need. And one of the ways I think that we arm them, and this goes back to the DEI, is that we, inter- we, we force them, demand that they interact with each other. Because if they can work with each other here, then they can do it in New York, they can do it in California, and they can do it back on the farm. But we need to be committed to you know, getting those folks here and giving them a great educational experience, making sure that they, that they see our belief in their potential. So, and I've done some research on intelligence and I have some pretty strong opinions about, you know, you know, we shouldn't have an either or perspective. I mean, some people are born into the world and they love intellectual ideas and some people would rather milk a cow every day. And I think we should respect that. I mean, both, you know, writing a book and milking a cow have dignity. Uh, and we need to have an educational system that respects that um, and doesn't, you know, try to get somebody to jam into one or the other. And what better place to do that than here in the middle, right, at the University yeah. of Iowa? I just think uh, we we have all the potential. Um, and I do feel like at times we've, we've lost our way. And it would be nice to recommit to the Iowa idea of the intersections between theory and practice, between art and science, between farm and city. I can I love it. And I do appreciate uh because I was feeling it in some of your work when I was doing research and also just a conversation with you, but, um, and not to put words in your mouth, but it feels like a big thing that drives you is almost to eradicate the world of false dichotomies. Is, <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah. Right. Is, is how do we appreciate these things? How might we assemble them in new and in, in, in better ways? And, uh, and uh, an underlying theme that I'm hearing through all of this too is, is compassion and empathy, which I, I think yep. is incredibly important. Absolutely. And necessary, you know, to, to bring people together, right. And to see um, the illusion of false dichotomies. So, well, you've given me a couple of new things to think about. I'm going to give you a new one. I feel like uh, I'm learning more okay. from you here. So um, uh, a scholar that I really respect um, who's done some nice work and she's traveled around a bit, but she's settled back in Cincinnati. And, it, you know, I, I don't think it'll surprise you that she's a Midwesterner um, uh, is a, a woman who talked about paradoxical thinking. Uh, and she's got a book and she's got some educational materials and some, some journal articles. And basically the notion of paradoxical thinking um, is that in fact, um, most dichotomies are false, but they're not false in the way that you think. Um, sometimes there are dichotomies, and both both are true. Um, you know that there's there's value in uh, an urban perspective, and there's value in a farm perspective. You know why why are we saying either or? It's it's both and. Yeah. Um, you know, and and the same is true for liberal and conservative mindsets, right? I mean, right. so you know, exploration and exploitation like conservative and liberal societies need and thrive on both a desire for stability and adherence to, um, you know, the, the sort of history and honoring of the history, as well as a desire to be progressive and to change and uproot things so that they're better. And it's in the tensions of those things. It's in holding those, the, the conflicting ideas and coming up with new third ways um, that we're using paradoxical thinking. 
I, I love it. And I, I will, I'll definitely dig in. And just recently I was having a conversation with uh, Dan Klein and he does a lot of work in the information architecture space. Mm-hmm. And he, te- he teaches uh, information architecture at the university of Michigan and also talks about our relationship with, with built environments and kind of information created environment. That was so interesting. Yeah. And one of the things that he shared too with me and I wish I wish I could uh, remember who it, this wasn't him. It was just his belief, but it feels like this paradoxical thinking said that the the opposite of a fact is a falsehood, but the opposite of a profound truth is another profound truth. Another profound truth. Right. That that's, those, yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. Those aren't so like yeah. the profound truths aren't mutually exclusive to something, but we do know yeah. like there is, you know, kind of like fact and falsehood, mm-hmm. but uh, that so I just loved what you're you're saying with the paradoxical thinking and yeah. it's such a challenge right I mean sorry we could go on forever because I now I'm thinking like <laughs> even Kahneman's work on system one system two thinking and exactly that was another connection I was going to make I agree I mean this is absolutely requires um, you know far more than traditional system one thinking you have to use system two thinking and it's fatiguing when people do that right that I think yep. we and and that's what we want to reward ourselves with almost these transactional things that we've earned hey I don't want to think mm-hmm. about that yeah let me go on autopilot yep. well so, Chris Ardris you know oh. uses double loop thinking yep you know it's the same idea um you know we we encounter it again and again uh, which means that there's some real fundamental truth to it. And I think, you know, we really have an obligation at the University of Iowa to, to try to transform people um, and, and get them to be, you know, in whatever domain and whatever passion of interest they have, you know, to be able to pause and reflect and engage in some system two double loop, you know, higher order metacognitive, whatever you call it, to be able yeah. to reflect. Uh, and if they can do that, you know, with a foundation of empathy and compassion, then I think then we can have political uh, disagreement without having discord. And we can have tension without having overt conflict. Uh, and, and, and that's, we, we got to find a way to that place because, you know, I'm just looking at our legislature right now and, and we're not there. They're not solving problems. They're yelling at each other. Right. Uh, and that's not helping anybody. No, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, uh, Adam Hansen from Ideas to Go. He wrote. Uh, it was one of the co-authors of Outsmarter Instincts. It was basically how do the cognitive biases that have evolved in humans, like basically, got us to here. But that type mm-hmm. of thinking is not going to get us to where we need to go. Exactly right. And he, one yep. of the powerful framing things that I, I I like to share with folks too is in terms of like trying to trying to have uh, more robust dialogue rather than argument, but how how might we frame this? There, there I go with all my designer kind of framing to begin with. Mm-hmm. How might yeah. how, do, how how do we frame this in fourness? Let's talk about the things that we're for, and let's exactly. like collaborate on those rather than I'm against that off the bat. So I'm going to dig in and yeah. it's, again to your point, the amount of money and uh, emotional cycles revenue cycles that we're burning on, like just going right against each <laughs> yeah. other. Button against each yeah. other. Yeah. So, well, um, let me give you two organizations absolutely. that are really Please. consistent with this. One is, is No Labels, um, which was founded by a Democratic and a Republican center. Um, and it's it's a little bit less vibrant. And I'm, I'm, I'd like to see it make a resurgent, uh, resurgence, but, um, you know, really sort of fascinating organization that says, look, politics and government should be about solving problems. What are the problems we agree on? 
And then, you know, let's find our way to solutions that are mutually agreeable. agreeable. And I just talked to a student today who said there's an organization on campus called Braver Angels. And Braver Angels draws out of a, a desire to uh, be able to have constructive dialogue where there are true, truly fundamental differences of opinion. Uh, and they bring in controversial speakers with the idea of helping students practice listening to controversial speakers and having meaningful dialogue. Um, so I, I, I love it. I think I'm fascinated by that concept and that idea. And I feel like, you know, every student should uh, have that experience. You know, we'll, we'll get later to every adult and citizen, but, you know, every student in Iowa, you know, should be able to have that experience and should have developed the skills, starting with compassion and empathy, but also the rhetorical skills, the self-control to listen and to disagree and to engage in a meaningful debate um, and to be able to articulate a political path forward that might not necessarily be compromised, but would at least respect the other position that's being offered. Thank you. And just to make sure too, for the listeners, the first one was no labels and the mm -hmm. second one was braver angels. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Right on. So you had said at the beginning, you were going to ask me for a quote. And I want to, I want to, yeah. um, I want to give you two at the risk of taking your long form and making it longer form. This is, this is um, great. As long as, <laughs> as if, as, as long as you're with me, I love it. <laughs> so uh, one comes out of something that my dad told me. He he's telling me the story again and again. And he just passed away a couple months ago. And uh, my Thank life you. is 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 uh, is an honor to him uh, and who he was as a psychologist. And he was also a university professor. Uh, and uh, and he told me this story and he told me it again, you know, a couple of weeks before he died. Um, in fact, he told me it a few times because towards the end, he forgot that he was telling me the same stories. So this is one that he told again and again, and it was about a professor that he had who would, you know, every year talk to his students. And uh, one of his lessons would begin with the archaic question, uh, do you know who cleans the classroom after you leave? Um, and, you know, the students would <laughs> look at each other like, has our professor just lost it? Um, what is going on? And, you know, people would sort of, uh, murmur and mumble, and he would repeat the question and just wait, and he would wait. And, uh, you know, the legend is that this professor would always do this. So you would think people would get wise to it. Um, and uh, and maybe they did, but uh, certainly this one time a student was brave enough to say, I'm sorry, professor, I don't know why that matters. Um, you know, students want to know, like, well, why, why, are we, why are you teaching this? Why is it on the test? And the professor just looked very simply and said, because everyone matters. And that has yeah. been a clarion call for me. Um, you know, it, it fits with everything we talked about. Like, why do we need diversity, equity, inclusion? Why do we say yes and? Why do we have compassion and empathy? Because at the end of the day, you know, whether it's out of a religious conviction or a humanist conviction, everybody matters and, and needs and deserves an opportunity to be heard and respected by those around him, her, or them. Uh, so, and, and then the last one is one of my dissertation, my dissertation advisor, Kevin Ford, who's a remarkable human being, you know, father of five, uh, active in the, you know, the Catholic church, a great husband, a great consultant, and a great teacher. You know, every time we would start talking about sort of consulting and stuff, he would say, yep, yep, yep. I hear what you're working on. 
And he would say, just remember today's solutions become tomorrow's problems. And it's classic systems thinking. And it also really, it forces people to have a little bit of humility. You know, you can sit down and you can develop the coolest cutting edge technology. And I think about the iPhone. Right. I mean, what amazing technology, what solution put it all in our hand. And now think about the problems that it's created for us. So, you know, I say to people on this journey that we're taking to make sure that we see that everyone matters and we build society that lives up to that principle, recognize that whatever solutions we put in place today are probably going to be wrong. And they're probably going to create other problems that were unintended which means we have a, a never ending journey. And if we don't have compassion on that journey, you know, we're not going to be up to the task. Yeah. So is. as, as educators, we have a lot of work to do if we're talking about giving people all these tools and skills, but this foundation of compassion and humility to handle these challenges going forward. That's so powerful. I really appreciate you sharing that. And I, and I wish I could remember who I saw from a design perspective, but it was, and it wasn't a designer. It was, I believe it was, I think it might've been a French philosopher, but it was when we first invented uh, electricity, we invented the first electrocution. When we invented flight, we invented the first exactly. plane crash. And all of these things that are embedded in that, but I, I, I love that uh, framing and elegance too of uh, uh, today's solution is tomorrow's problem. And yes, and then also to the the story that your dad shared too about that because everybody matters, right? and right. and as we said, because everybody matters and wanting to do great things too, those aren't mutually exclusive, right? Exactly. So. Exactly. Ken, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Uh, I feel like I want to uh, go sign up for more. Uh, more undergrad classes right now so I can just get back into the undergrad program here. It sounds like there's a lot of great work going on. Well, we are trying. I mean, as Iowa's a great institution. It's a great state. I am delighted to call it my adopted home. Um, and, uh, you know, I really want to continue to do the work, um, you know, to, to make the institution better uh, and, uh, and, and to make sure that every student, every student that comes through uh, the doors has an opportunity to have a transformative uh, educational experience that lifts them up, sees them for who they are, right? Doesn't mold them into something they aren't, right. but lifts them up, uh, respects who they are, and gives them the tools so that they can uh, follow their dreams, uh, not the dreams we have for them. So yeah, there's great stuff going on. Uh, and I'm, I'm really proud to be part of that at the university. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And go Hawks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Go Hawks. <laughs> Take care. Thanks, Matt. I always love talking to you. Bye.